Sunday. Kind of a big day for us, okay. Uh, so I'm so glad each of you is here. I'm ready to get into the text today. I got a lot to say, okay. So Luke chapter 7, you know, uh, and with all due respect to Christmas, I think this is the most wonderful time of the year, okay, because he is not here. He's risen, it says in Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at next week. The seven words that changed the world, seven words that changed my life, okay. But I'll save that for next week. Well, we're actually going to celebrate that he's risen today, too, and the next Sunday and the next Sunday after that. Okay, all right. So, uh, so it's just a wonderful time of the year because it really, as Brandon was saying, it's this reminder that he's risen, that everything that we need done is done. And we got bills and we got stuff, but Yahweh, the King of Kings, Jesus himself has already declared it is finished in your life. You're saved. You've been justified. So, praise God. Okay, so uh, let me encourage you in the strongest of terms to invite someone to church next week. It's something, especially in our area, it just kind of makes sense to people to come to church on Easter, even if they haven't been to church in years. And so, you know, we got blue cards, or you could just actually tell them that they can sit with you and come with me next week. And, you know, that we're going to have a photo booth. You can have a picture with your family or whatever, so, which is actually going to happen. So, invite people to church next week that actually makes sense to them to come on Easter. So, please do that. But today... I'm going to speak from Luke chapter 7 on becoming a people of radical acceptance. Redemption City. I, we, the Bible, Jesus, we want to become a people of radical acceptance. In an age of division, Jesus has placed us here to bless, to give mercy, to be agents of reconciliation, to give a cup of water to the thirsty people, to welcome the lonely. And you're like, okay, though, like, what does it look like to become people of radical acceptance in 2023? Do we just like grab a bullhorn and go to the sock yards and yell the truths of the Bible at them until they relent? Do we like put out those, you know, th those tracks that look like a $100 bill until you pick them up and then it shares the gospel with you? Think that's going to work? Do we just give C.S. Lewis books to people and hope they figure it out? Okay, what does it look like to actually engage our city with the gospel in 2023 what if it looks less like a megaphone in the stockyards and more like having friends over for dinner? Well, bringing, what if it looks more like bringing a coworker along to church or to your city group to enjoy a meal and share their story? What if it looks a lot more like smoking a delicious Texas brisket and having people over to your front yard for a cookout? Amen. I love this church. Amen. Go ahead. So what if we like Jesus step toward the pain in our society. That is everywhere. What, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus, you know, we're, if you're new today, we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. We see Jesus often spending time with the poor and with people who had, who other people had nothing to do with, with lepers and different things, outcasts, who had very little happiness or hope. And so one pain point that I think we can step toward in our society is loneliness. So since 1990, the number of Americans who say, I have no friends at all, has quadrupled, okay? 54% uh, of Americans report that, quote, no one knows me well. And we all know that we're living through a mental health crisis. And of course, the reasons for that are complex. But an obvious, like, widespread reason is that we're living lonely lives without meaning. If humans uh, were animals, then the promise of more money and freedom would be enough. But if we're souls right? Uh, if survival and pleasure are not enough for us, then the world's promises leave us in crisis. And I would argue that that is what's happening. Enter the church, each equipped with a table, even if it's a coffee table, each equipped with an apartment or home, 
and that we can love people and host people. So as we go there this morning, before we even begin, I want to differentiate between entertaining people and hosting people. Okay, so I'm not picturing like a Martha Stewart perfect table with perfect china and perfect feng shui and fresh flowers. Seven course meal where everything's hot and ready at the same time. Okay, I know that I can't, we can't pull that off. Okay, Martha can, but that's not what we're describing. It's an atmosphere, okay, an atmosphere of welcoming. It's a vibe, as the kids say. (laughs) All the 20-somethings were like, Dad, please don't. Don't ruin it for us, Uh, but it is. We are to welcome people into our lives like Jesus welcomed people into his. We're to welcome people in with care. In the story that we're going to look at this morning, it's not the party even isn't even at his house. And he becomes the host because he's gracious and welcoming and accepting and loving. And he welcomes this woman in a way that nobody ever had her entire life. Look at Luke 7, verse. we'll start in verse 34. The Son of Man, Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. So this is something that the Pharisees were saying about Jesus. Look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of these awful people like tax collectors, these sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of our children. So, and then it goes into the story. One of the Pharisees, the religious elite, asked Jesus to eat at his house. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she read on Twitter that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask, a woman, very, very, probably her entire net worth. And standing behind Jesus at this elite party, she began weeping. Not one solitary tear down her eye. She's falling apart. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with this ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, of course, he didn't, you know, just as we get into this, if you talk about Jesus in your head around him, it's not a great idea, okay? The Pharisee said to himself, if Jesus was a prophet, if he really was, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, (laughs) okay, said, Simon, I know what you're thinking about over there, and I got something to say to you. And he was like, I say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other just 50. When they, neither of them could pay, he, the, the, the uh, moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, well, the, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The point there is they're both in debt and neither can pay it. So whether you owe, whether you've done 500 denarii worth of sin or 50, you're both in debt that you can't pay, myself included. And verse 44, then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you even see this woman? I entered your house, and you, gave, you didn't even give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't even give me a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has who. But he who is forgiven little loves little, 48. And he said to her, sis, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with Jesus began to say among themselves, who does he think he is who forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In the first century, when Luke was written, it really mattered who you ate with. Like having a meal with somebody was a very public declaration, declaration that you accepted this person. That's why everybody in the room was distancing themselves from this woman. But Jesus accepts her. Uh, and we read this, you know, we read this in 2023. We're like, ah, oh, isn't Jesus the best? He's so sweet. But everybody at the party hated that Jesus did this. They could not stand that this was happening in their presence. But that's who Jesus is. Jesus accepts People, our first observation today is Jesus welcomes every kind of person. Not the people I'm okay with or that you're okay with in this party or that party. Every kind of person, not some kinds of people. He accepts anybody. So clearly, right, Jesus, this woman was not invited to the party. Pretty clearly you see in the text. It's an awkward scene. They're all drinking their fancy drinks and their fancy glasses with their pinkies in the air and music, you know, classical music is playing. And then this woman walks in the front door and a quiet hush falls over the crowd. What is she doing? What's going on over there? Okay. And she's, and then matters gets even more awkward, get even more awkward. She walks over to Jesus, and standing behind him, she just starts weeping. Can you imagine how awkward that is in a social setting? And she's overcome with the guilt of her past, the shame of everything that she's been involved in, and from her present. This wasn't something that happened years ago. She's ashamed of what she has become, but Jesus doesn't reject her. He doesn't dismiss her. Some have suggested that she was like a sex worker. We don't know that necessarily, but from the language in Luke 7, woman of the city who was a sinner, it's clear that she's a person with a past, okay? So as we consider that Jesus welcomes every kind of person, the obvious implication is we accept every kind of person, a wholehearted, without reservation, welcome. Okay, guess a good time to amen, okay? Not just in a church meeting, obviously here, okay? Yeah, we want to be the kind of Sunday morning gathering where we accept and we welcome everybody, of course, but we're the people who, out there, when, when somebody feels isolated or alone or awkward, we're the people who step toward them and go, hey, come sit with me. That's who we are. Students, I know it's a social risk, but we're the people who invite the new student to lunch and to sit with us, Okay. We are accepting people because Jesus has accepted us. We have been made free to accept people. Uh, my middle son, my oldest son, Cole, at his, I'm one of the coaches on his baseball team. And a couple of Saturdays ago, at the first game, two parents got in a fight. And I mean that in every sense of the word, okay? Uh, and, you know, cops were called. A lot of cuss words were thrown out. None by me, just a few by Courtney, okay? Uh, <laughs> God forgives. So, uh, but, you know, in the second inning, the ump calls the game. It's over, okay? Those same parents sheepishly showed up to practice last Tuesday night. And I made it a point to throw my arms wide and say, hey, come on in there and welcome them in like I think Jesus would have. We've all messed up. Come on, we've all lost our temper. We've all done stuff like that. Christians are sometimes known as the people who make parties lame. We're sometimes known as the ones who make things tense, right? But we ought to be known as the people who make things comfortable and great, right? Like, like Jesus. At the party in Luke 7, Jesus wasn't like walking around looking in their glasses like, okay. 
Or like when somebody might have let a word or two slip, he wasn't making the whole room feel tense. You see there in 36, he reclined at the table. Everybody was comfortable around Jesus, okay? He made the party better. Our Savior did. Do you? Do unchurched people feel awkward around you sometimes because you're a Christian? You know? Uh, do, do you make them feel kind of bad for their choices or, or whatever? This lady cries. She weeps when she sees Jesus, but not because he looked at her with disgust, not because he judged her. She weeps because she knows she's in the presence of real love. And that's who we are. We're the people of radical acceptance, not being intensely judgy. Okay, we can get that flipped upside down. So uh, in, this, in the first century in this region of the Mediterranean, and still is the case today, mealtimes were far more than just a moment of nourishment. It was, this, uh, you know, it was a time of reconciliation. It was a ceremony of friendship and unity. Thus, anybody who had betrayed you or you had beef with or you were in a, you know, anything like that, they would not be invited to your table. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi, writing about this culture, says when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So like if you and your mom haven't spoken in two years and then you invite her to Easter lunch, you don't even really got to talk it out. Everything is good at that point is the idea. Reconciliation. And as I was studying for the sermon this week and I came across that quote, I got to think a lot about our own country, you know, and just how divided we are. And in the very short letter to Philemon in the New Testament, it's one of the shortest books of the Bible, if not the shortest, Paul writes to a guy named Philemon, okay, who owned bondservants. Okay, it wasn't exactly like, uh, you know, American slavery in like the 1600s and all, but Philemon owned people until they paid off their debt, okay? So Paul writes in Philemon, it'll be on the screens for you. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command to you, to do what is required, Philemon. Yet for love's sake, I, Paul, prefer to appeal to you. I'm an old man now. I'm a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child, Onesimus. Now, some context there. Onesimus was owned by Philemon in the past. Onesimus stole some stuff and fled and didn't pay off his debts by continuing to work. He left, okay? So he, he owns uh, he owes Philemon doubly in that culture. So he owes him his time and he owes him the stuff that he stole. So I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you. It's a uh, uh, play on words. And to me, I am sending Onesimus back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me and I could in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might be, not by compulsion, but but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But no longer, look, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, uh, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, put that on my account. So although Philemon is just one chapter, I think it's a little bit too long upon first reading. Why didn't Paul just write, hey, Philemon, we don't own people. Grace and peace, Paul. Right? Uh, that's because Paul knows there's something more, there's something even greater 
There's something even more powerful than emancipation. What's more powerful than emancipation? Reconciliation. He didn't just say, release Onesimus. He says, y'all are brothers now. Way more powerful. See, in America, we've achieved emancipation, but we have not accomplished yet reconciliation. Um, In another letter, Paul says that as reconciled people, God has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. So I'm going to keep talking about this for a couple of minutes, but I'm just going to use biblical words. So don't import all of the different social narratives into what I'm saying. I'm just using biblical words, okay? You know, so as we consider the implications of Luke 7, some of the most awkward scenes, some of the most awkward moments in our society are as a result, are a result of not achieving racial reconciliation, right? So we've seen emancipation, praise God, and even more through the civil rights movement. You know, we don't have separate bathrooms in schools anymore, praise God, but there's still so much tension, right? And God has tasked us with reconciliation. You go, well, I didn't do any of this. I'm not guilty. Okay, I understand that, but God has tasked us, His people. What he wants is reconciliation. People, okay, so again, not as activists, okay? Activists want a stage and a microphone. Reconcilers want a dinner table and a friendship. In the story in Luke 7, Jesus didn't cave to social pressure, but instead welcomed a woman of the city in in a way that nobody ever has. So hospitality and being welcoming people, again, not just like being the welcoming team at church, that's great, okay? But like a welcoming spirit on the ball field when parents made a fool of themselves, all around society, right? Hospitality and being welcoming people might be the best reconciliation tools in our hands. Your table. Being like Jesus at a party that's not even your house, right? And it's not going to happen by just winning an argument. I learned, like, I think it was within the first year of marriage that when I win the argument, (laughs) married men are already laughing. If I win, we lose, okay? So we don't fight like the world fights. We don't, okay? We do the work of reconciliation. Take a step, find ways, build a bridge, make an invitation. I probably told 100 black people in Fort Worth in February, happy Black History Month, and they loved it. You know, so just find a way, cross the bridge, right? Learn some Spanish words and try to, you know, create a relationship with Hispanic people, right? Although that one can backfire. People talk, speak Spanish to Courtney all the time and she didn't have any clue what they're saying, okay? But, you know, we have a multinational city, Praise God. God has brought the nations to our doorsteps. A lady who grew up in another country and who lives in our neighborhood, Courtney, uh, invited her and her little boy uh, to, for a little play date, go to a, a you know, park or whatever. And there, as they were talking, she told Courtney that nobody in America had ever invited her anywhere. She lived here for years by that point. And she began, as she was talking about it, she said people kind of barely talk to her. They're pretty dismissive of her. Even when she tries to initiate, they go, I don't, what, what are you saying? Imagine how lonely that has to feel. Jesus asked the Pharisee, do you see this woman? Okay, so do you see the refugee? Do you see the stranger? Do you see the person who just moved to our city? Imagine the effect on Fort Worth if we would see what Jesus sees. If we would build bridges for people and be kind and have a welcoming spirit everywhere we go. Just imagine our impact if we would act like Jesus everywhere we went. Be crazy, right? Uh, what changed this woman in Luke 7 wasn't just that Jesus accepted her, though. Okay, that opened the door, right? That created the possibility for real change, but the real change was forgiveness. He didn't just stop because Jesus wants to forgive sin. That's our second observation today. He didn't just accept her. He was ready to forgive. Forgiving someone means they've done something wrong. 
Okay, so it's not acting like, oh, you've never sinned, let's just... So he didn't just welcome her, just like, you know, let her wash his feet, and they go, all right, girl, get back out there and do you. You know, follow your heart, do whatever you think's right, peace and blessings. I know that's what we want to do, but that's not love. To encourage her to continue going in her sinful ways would actually be hateful, I believe. So the expectation is she's going to get a new job now. Okay, she'll start living by faith. She won't be immediately perfect like none of us was, but she's been made right. Or to use the big word, she's been justified. A buddy of mine planted a church in New Braunfels and uh, always says that their church is trying to turn everyday places into sacred spaces. That's the idea of the message today. I love that. What he means is that God's kingdom expands to wherever you are. That everyday normal life can be made into sacred opportunities for people to know God, be accepted by God, be forgiven by Jesus himself. Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. You, okay? God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, city of Fort Worth, be reconciled to God. As an ambassador, your home, your apartment is an embassy of the kingdom. Your desk at work is an embassy of God's kingdom. You know what an ambassador does, okay? An ambassador does not have his or her own message, but simply delivers the message of another. That's all we do, okay? We accept and we welcome like Jesus and we herald his message. Uh, Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we, we herald, be reconciled to God. Okay, he wants you, he loves you, he died and rose again for you, neighbor, friend, okay? Hospitality isn't just like having friends over, but reaching out beyond all boundary lines that society creates for us. You know, historians argue that table fellowship and having uh, people into our homes, that this is the primary way that the gospel spread at such a rapid pace in the first three centuries. Think about how crazy it was that Christianity went, you know, from just a few hundred people meeting together in an upper room into over half the population of the Roman Empire in just three centuries, toppling paganism itself. You know, any, you know anybody worshiping Zeus today? They don't, even, they don't even do that in California. Okay, I mean, no offense to you Californians, but they, we did this with no political power, no protection, you know, under waves of persecution, being publicly eaten alive in the Roman Colosseum. No sound systems, no internet, no printing press, no church buildings. The gospel spread from one home to the next, from one table to the next, and it changed the course of human history. And that sort of movement can happen again. If we begin to see our tables and our everyday rhythms of life as strategic opportunities to love people into God's kingdom. If we own the mission of accepting people like Jesus and offering them forgiveness from God, take a step, build a bridge, make an invitation. Would to God that we would turn everyday places into sacred spaces, that we would see everywhere we go as an opportunity to bless somebody, accept someone, welcome someone, to turn that everyday space into a moment with God. Uh, let's, let's pray together. God, we're so grateful that, that you would think to use us on mission. <laughs> um, we, are, uh, we bring so much into the room, God, and I pray. Um, Father, I pray now that you would help us see your vision of reaching our city, that you would change who we are from the inside out, that we would understand your love for us and for others so deeply that we can't help but be welcoming on the ball field and at work and at school and in the spaces around where we live, work, and play. So God, make us into those people. And now, God, as we transition to kind of responding to you, help us. 
Uh, help us hear from you, know you, and I pray more than anything, God, that you would drive the stakes of the gospel deeper in each of our hearts, that we would know that this is not by compulsion, but you love us so much that you gave your son for us and on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.